Good morning. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to re-enter the great book of Romans. And of course I say re-enter because quite a while ago we studied this book as a church. And if you're new, of course that'll be new to you, but if you've been here a while, this will be a, a wonderful refresher um, to your soul. <clears throat> We're calling our sermon series that we're beginning today the, the Great Romans 8, or the Great Eight. And we're going to um, try to unpack this great chapter, in my opinion, the greatest chapter in all of Scripture, in eight weeks. And so we'll see how that goes. But um, my goal is to have this done by the second Sunday in June. And I would encourage you with all my heart to do your best to be here as often as possible uh, for this series. I, I believe that this series, this chapter, uh, is one of the most transformative chapters in all the Bible. And if you see your spiritual life kind of lagging in any way, this great chapter of Romans 8 will do a miracle in your soul. And so I hope you'll be with us um, make some sacrifices to be here as often as possible. Here are some quotes from notable people concerning this particular book in the Bible. Martin Luther called Romans the clearest gospel of all. John Calvin said, if a man understands it, that is Romans, he has a sure road open to him to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. You're struggling understanding the Bible? Figure Romans out, and the rest clears up. William Tyndale, who came before Luther and Calvin, said, Romans is a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. John Chrysostom, the great preacher, said it had to be read to him aloud at least once a week. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? The, God, the book of Romans, once a week. J.I. Packer, who just left us to go join Luther, Calvin, Tyndale, and Chrysostom, said this, all roads lead to Romans. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. And all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there's no telling what may happen. This is why we're revisiting Romans 8. Tempted to revisit the whole book, but I may die before that's possible. So... But this is why we began Sun Valley Church with a four-plus-year study of the great book of Romans. I knew that if, as a church, we had a handle on Romans, the rest of scriptures would fall into place for us. And they have, haven't they? A clear understanding of the gospel is critical to a clear understanding of scripture. And there's no better place to understand the gospel than right here in Romans. If we understood Romans, then what Packer said would be fun to watch at least for me as a pastor, he said, when the message of Roman gets into a person's heart, there's no telling what may happen. And we've been watching what has been happening in the lives of God's people for the past 15 years since we began our study in Romans. So for those of you who were here when we began this study many years ago, who knows what life choices have been altered because of God's work in your heart through your understanding of Romans. You don't even know. God does. 
So today we're going to go back and re-examine at least Romans 8. And there are a few reasons for this. Not everyone here was here when we studied Romans 8 the first time. Uh, I would say less than half of our current body at Central Lake Church were here when we studied Romans, which is a great blessing, isn't it? To know that God has built up this local congregation the way that he has so that half of you have never heard preached, at least in this pulpit, the book of Romans. That's a great blessing. But, but I want to acquaint you, and if you've heard it before, to reacquaint you with this life-altering truth found in Romans 8. If there's one chapter in the Bible I'd want everyone at Sun Valley Church to understand, it would be this one, Romans 8. Do you have Romans 8 in the heart? Have you got it figured out? If so, life changes. Second reason I want to preach Romans 8 to you again, it's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Who couldn't help but love to study and know a chapter that begins with the verse, one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to know more. Just hearing that. And that's what we're going to do. It's the high chapter of the book of Romans, which is the high book of Scripture. So if you're a cherry picker, this is the place to be. Romans 8. I know there's a lot more in Romans 8 that, that we... Then we uncovered the first time, and so I want to preach it again to you. Thirdly, there are elements of Romans 8 that have been clarified in my mind that I'd like to preach to you again with that improved clarity, and hopefully I'll be able to preach that with renewed and increased fervor than when I first covered it. When we studied Romans 8 the first time, I was in my 40s, now I'm in my 60s. And I've learned a lot more about God, about salvation, scripture, Christian life, and Romans 8 identifies all those things. I've also learned a lot more about you since Romans 8 was first preached in this pulpit. So at this point in our corporate lives, we need Romans 8. I think you're going to love it. The challenging thing, of course, for us is to try to pick a chapter out of its setting and preach it sufficiently so that we'll understand it to its depth. I think this is going to be our biggest hurdle over the next eight to nine weeks. Because you know that the best way to study any book or any chapter in the Bible is to study it in context, right? And so what I'm suggesting is that we pull Romans out of context and restudy it. And that's why I say it's going to be a hurdle. But the best way to study Romans 8 is to first study Romans 1 through 7. Uh, but I don't think my strategy is to pluck Romans 8 out of the blue. I, I think because half of us have been through Romans 1 through 7 a few years back, um, you'll, you'll grasp the content of Romans 8 more clearly. But even those of you who haven't been through the preaching of Romans 1 through 7, I hope to, as we move along, to familiarize you with the content of Romans 1 through 7 so Romans 8 makes complete sense to you. So you're not picking up a a chapter in the middle of a book, per se, and hoping to understand both sides. So how are we going to get the most out of Romans 8? Well, we're going to start by understanding the central message of Romans 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible, open to Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to give you a crash course on Romans 
chapter 1 through 3. And here's the summary of those three wonderful chapters. We are lost and helpless sinners. You are a lost and helpless sinner. We don't need Paul to know that humanity is in trouble, do we? I mean, just have you been awake the last 18 months? If so, you know the condition of the human heart, don't you? You know the condition of your own soul, just in your responses to what you've experienced, has revealed to you the sinfulness of your own heart. At least that's the case in my life. So we don't need Paul to know that humanity is in trouble. But Romans 1 through 3 definitely tells us why this is the case. What we need Paul to explain to us, which he does in the first three chapters of Romans, is that man's problem isn't just that he does bad things from time to time. No, we need to know how deep this sin thing runs in us. We need to know, we need to know clearly that we aren't just sinners because we sin. We need to know that we sin because we're sinners. And that is a massive difference. Sinners, we're not just sinners because we sin from time to time. We sin because we have a heart of a sinner. It runs in our veins, it's in our DNA. This is what King David meant in Psalm 51.5 when he said, In sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't suggesting his mom was sinning when he was conceived. He was saying the moment he was conceived, he was a sinner. As beautiful as all of our SVC babies are, and we have a ton, um, as much of a blessing they are to our church and to their families, hear me, they are all, these cute little babies, dirty, rotten sinners. On Easter Sunday five years ago, I called the cute newborn Charlie Pinch a dirty, rotten sinner to the consternation of his parents and grandparents. So today I want to round out my summary of the Pinch clan by saying that Chris and Jill's newborn twins, Jacob and Michael, (laughs) have added to the number of sinners that make up that growing family. They are responsible for populating the earth with sinners. So you can take that up with the Pinch family. Have you noticed the sin yet, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should just let Tony and Diane come up here and give a testimony of the sin that runs through their family. (laughs) Anytime. (laughs) This sinfulness seriously is is really bad news, isn't it? Bad news for all of us. Sin intends to ruin each of us in every way. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And that word actually should be translated, the Not a lie, but the lie that came from Satan originally. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. 
And in Adam and Eve's case, they, instead of worshiping God, they worshiped themselves. They put themselves above God, just like Satan did. And this sin resulted in four inevitable byproducts that we all struggle with. Listen to them. Selfishness. This is the basic element of a sinful heart. The reason for this is that the author of sin, who is Satan, is inherently a selfish being. You remember Isaiah 14, right? Verses 13 and 14. Satan said to God, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like God. That's the author of sin. No wonder one of the byproducts of sin in our lives is selfishness. The king of sin, Satan himself, is the selfish one. And if we're going to be like him, which we're all born like him, we will be selfish, which we are. We prove that the day we're born. I want my, my way. Right? This same selfishness is what Satan used to deceive Adam and Eve. Satan tempted them to believe that they shouldn't have to submit to God because they were important people after all. They were the only people. Right? They should have the right to decide how to live, right to exercise their own will. Right. Think, think through the sins that you're familiar with. How many of those sins are based on selfishness? Let me give you a hint. 100%. That's how many of your sins are based on selfishness. <laughs> the reason we sin is because we have our own selfish interests at heart. We want our own way. And anything that gets in the way of what we want catches our wrath, doesn't it? This affects our relationships, our finances, our vocational choices, our churches, our families, our entertainment, everything. Second byproduct of sin is guilt. This is something that we all hate, isn't it? No one likes guilt. And so we do everything we can to get rid of it. But we sin and... Lo and behold, we're strapped with guilt. But you would know, because we know Scripture, that guilt is actually a gift from God, isn't it? It's kind of like pain. It alerts you to something wrong. The reason you, as a child, learn not to put your hand on the hot stove is because when you did, it hurt. This is what guilt does in the life of every human being. God grants the gift of guilt to steer us away from sin, to steer us towards him. Modern psychology tries to interrupt God's design by telling people that they aren't so bad. They just have occasional struggles, which everybody has. They shouldn't feel guilty about that. When someone goes to a secular counselor or even a doctor because of the results of guilt, like anxiety, fear, bitterness, sleeplessness, whatever, they'll hear this. Uh, don't feel bad about that. It's normal. All right, I want to put your mind at ease. This is normal. You just need to move on. Don't dwell on it. Don't listen to anyone who tries to make you feel bad for doing things that you want to do. And when verbal persuasion doesn't work, they prescribe drugs that dull the conscience and eliminates guilt. Those who choose not to go to professionals for help try to self-medicate. They mask their guilt with entertainment, possessions, alcohol, drugs, any distraction to dull the pain. Guilt. But guilt is a God-given gift that's intended to steer people out of danger. It's intended to guide people to the source of peace that the world can't offer, no matter how hard they try. Romans 1.32. Listen how guilty people respond. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, so they know their sin, they're dealing with guilt, what do they do? They not only do them or continue to do them, they give approval to those who practice them. Sound familiar? (laughs) Trying to assuage their guilt, they try to build a group of guilty people around them. Encourage guilt. We all feel fine going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit if everybody else is going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. But if you're flying past cars on any road, you feel guilty. You encourage people. If you had a sign, speed up with me, please. Right? And the the policemen buy into this, this sham. They pull over the person who's going the fastest. Even all of us are going faster than the speed limit. The third byproduct of sin is the lack of purpose and meaning. Lack of purpose and meaning. This is a very common byproduct, isn't it? Selfishly pursuing anything that will fill the void that God intends to only fill with himself. People pursue anything and everything they think will produce purpose, meaning to their aimless lives. They're tired of not having a purpose. As Solomon pointed out in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, after all of his pursuits for peace and for joy, he says this all ends in despair and futility. He says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All right? And of course, this leads to the fourth byproduct of sin, which is hopelessness. Hopelessness. Hopelessness is why people give up. It's why people divorce. It's why people commit suicide. It's a byproduct of sin. These four byproducts of sin are each dealt with in Romans in wonderful ways. And in chapter 8, each one is given a remedy for each of these byproducts of sin. You can't wait to get to those, can you? Each and every person, no matter what their background, their religious preference, no matter what their socioeconomic status, are infected by sin and will experience the byproducts of it. You're not getting out of it, Paul teaches. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul says it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, educated or not. We are all affected and infected with sin. No one gets a pass. Listen to what he says in verses 9 through 12 of Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews better off? After just describing the sinful condition of the Gentiles, he turns to the Jews and says, are we any better? He goes, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written from Psalm 14. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Talk about depressing. That's the point of Romans 1 through 3, is to depress the socks off you so that you'll know you need a Savior. So this is what Paul does in the first three chapters. He establishes the grave condition of every one of us. We are all sinners, and no number of good deeds will change that. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
Don't matter how many good things you do, you can't undo the weighted scale of sin. Every one of us is a sinner deserving God's just condemnation. Unless you understand this point, Romans 8 will never make sense. And neither will the gospel, by the way. Unless you know you're a sinner in need of God's grace, the gospel makes no sense to you. Unless you realize you have offended God with your sin and offended God with your attempts to win his favor, you'll never see the need for his help that's found in the good news that's laid out in Romans and highlighted in Romans 8. You must see your need if you'll ever see a Savior. That's the message of Romans 1 through 3. Paul began this letter with this announcement in the very first sentence. He says, Paul, introducing himself, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the good news of the gospel, or the good news of God. This is why the book's written, to tell you there is good news. In spite of all this despairing information, there's good news. And I'm about to tell you what it is, Paul says. As we know, the good news must start with the bad news, which is why he starts with Romans 1 through 3. Clearly establishing that we are all sinners deserving God's judgment, we are lost and hopeless sinners. Then Romans 4 and 5. That's where we move into the second point, getting ready for Romans 8. I'm trying to give you context here. Romans 4 and 5 delivers the promise too good to be true. The promise that is too good to be true. Usually if something sounds good, too good to be true, what do we discover? It is too good to be true. It's not true. We're conditioned to think skeptically about these kind of claims, aren't we? Yeah, so starting at the end of chapter 3 and going through chapter 5, Paul reveals some amazing good news and the accompanying promises. After detailing the really bad news of the effects of sin, Paul writes about the best news that anyone has ever heard. The best news that anyone has ever heard. Let me read for you the good news that's the best news that anybody has heard. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. This is where he kicks off the good news part. So if you have a pen and you're taking notes, there ought to be some marker in your Bibles around Romans 3.21. Okay, this is a massive transition from the hopelessness of sin to the hope in Jesus Christ. But, what a word. Don't you love that word? But, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Friends, more than anything else, this is the focus of Satan's fury. 
This promise, this truth, is what Satan works nonstop, night and day, to keep you from believing what I just read for you. He fights on this front more than any other. He knows that if he loses you here, he's lost you for good. He, he wants you to believe that your sins are too great for even God to deal with. Have you seen your sins? He would ask. God can't deal with those. My goodness. You're hopeless. Satan wants you to doubt that the good news in these verses isn't really true. It's, it's too good to be true. It's, it can't be. So knowing that this news would be sounding too good to be true, the Apostle Paul begins to support God's promises here that he just mentioned in verses 21 through 26 with the example of Abraham in chapter 4, who every Jew would know and most Gentiles, even in Paul's day, would know who Abraham was. And so he uses Abraham as a critical example of the promises given here at the end of Romans 3. So let's look at the example of Abraham. Chapter 4 is filled with the example of Abraham. In order to understand the gospel, we need to understand Abraham. And Abraham's a great example. How one can become right with God, but only by believing God and his promises. Paul chose to use Abraham to explain the good news for specific reasons. Here are some of the reasons that Paul used Abraham as an example. First of all, Abraham was human. Abraham was human. Up until Romans 4, Paul had been referring to salvation by faith in abstract terms. But with the introduction of Abraham, we have the abstract meeting the practical, the theological meeting the person. So in chapter 4, we read that, that something, someone, a person, a human, can actually experience God's grace. The promise of God isn't just for discussions in monasteries, seminaries, and obituaries. It has real-life application. The second reason Paul used Abraham is that he lived 2,000 years before Paul wrote Romans. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Paul wrote Romans. Using Abraham communicated the importance that salvation comes by faith and not by doing works of the law. How so? Well, when was the Mosaic law written? When was all this to do and not to do written? Before or after Abraham? 600 years after Abraham. There was no law when Abraham was alive. There was nothing he could break. Right? <laughs> so, so, so this is a critical point. He couldn't have been saved by observing the law. He couldn't have been saved by doing good works. There was no list. So Paul chose him to prove that you can't be saved by works. There was no such thing in Abraham's day. No law, no lists of to-dos. Jews believed that God saved Abraham because he was such a good guy. This belief about Abraham recorded in many apocryphal books. But chapter 4 of Romans destroys that point. You can't be saved by good works. The same point is destroyed by Moses in Genesis when he describes Abraham. 
If Abraham was not and could not be justified by keeping the law, listen closely, then no one can be. On the other hand, if it took faith for Abraham to be justified, then faith must be required of everyone. <laughs> what a beautiful choice of an example. There's no getting around the obvious point here. You must be saved by faith and not works, period. It must be a gift of God. We can only be saved by faith. Nothing else works. Paul was striking at the very heart of every single religion, of every single human ever born. He was demolishing the idea that everyone hopes will work one day with God. Good works. How many times have you asked someone if they're going to heaven? They say, well, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. This is the very thing Paul was addressing. That doesn't work, Paul says. The religious and all religious people believe that their good works will win God's favor, don't they? You may even believe that, sitting here as a Christian. If I'm just a good boy or a good girl and do my devotions and give my tithe, God will like me. Wake up and smell Romans 8. Even those who claim not to believe God struggle with the urge to be moral people, don't they? Because of this very spiritual principle, we want to be good. We want to be acceptable. Abraham teaches us that salvation can't be attained by good works, only faith. Now let's look at the promises of God laid out by Paul in Romans 4 and 5. The promise of God. Let me begin this by reading Romans 4, 5 through 7. Listen to this. Shocking news. And to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. Quoting David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Did you hear that? <laughs> Let me read the first part again. To the one who does not work, that's like God saying, listen, uh, you need your lawn mowed. I'm going to come mow it. And while he's there mowing it, you go out with a pair of scissors and clip one blade of grass and say, look, I helped. That's offensive to the lawnmower, isn't it? You didn't help. You got in my way. This is what Paul's saying here in Romans, the whole book of Romans. To anyone who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Period. What news? What good news? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Paul quoted King David here from Psalm 32 and Moses from Genesis 15 in that verse I just read for you to prove that salvation has always been by grace through faith. It was that way for Moses, Abraham, David, and you <laughs> and me. God has always promised and fulfilled his promise to those who will believe him and only those who will believe him, not those who try to impress him. 
The choice of Abraham is also interesting to me because of who Abraham was before God called him. You remember Abraham's life before Christ, don't you? He was from Ur, the Chaldees. He was an idolater from a long line of idolaters, didn't know God, didn't care about God. And God reached down and said, you're mine. You are mine. In his grace, in his mercy, God called Abraham like he did Paul, like he does with every single person who comes. We are all idolaters. You are an idolater. And it's not because you have a little silver statue hidden in your closet. It's because you think you should be above God, just like Adam and Eve. They were idolaters. Abraham was an idolater. Paul was an idolater and blasphemer. We are idolaters. And the same way God called Abraham out of Ur, he calls you out of sin and saves your soul by his grace and mercy. The point is, that you are not too far from God for him to reach you. You haven't committed a sin that God's grace can't cover. If God can save Abraham, an idolater, and Paul, a murderer and blasphemer, he can certainly save you, is the message of Romans. Don't be tricked into believing that your faith must be perfect to be saved. You must understand the basic elements of the gospel for sure. And here they are. You got a pen. God's holy. You're not. You need a savior. That's the basics of the gospel. Right? Abraham's faith was far from perfect. In fact, the life of Abraham recorded in Genesis is littered with failures of faith. Which is why it's recorded. <laughs> His life was progressive in faith and the most prominent test of Abraham's faith was waiting for the promised son right Isaac he was promised a son when he was 75 didn't receive that promise until he was a hundred and his wife was 90 all right that's about how long Sherry and I are gonna have to wait for grandchildren <laughs> evidently but here's a great lesson in saving faith and Sherry and I are at peace, believe us. <laughs> Notice I don't have much gray hair. This is, this is a beautiful story. Um, this, is, this is the point of saving faith. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids until they realized they couldn't have kids. They needed to know they needed a savior. God takes us all down that same path. Until you know your need, until, you're hopelessly, until you see your hopelessness in sin, the gospel makes no sense to you. It never will. But the greatest test of faith in Abraham's life was when God told Abraham to go and sacrifice his only son, his promised son, on an altar, three days travel away. It's bad enough that I have to sacrifice my son, but why do I need to take him there? And of course, we know there was, right? We know what was there, don't we? 
Where did, he take, where did God tell Abraham to go sacrifice his son? Mount Moriah. Where did Jesus die? Mount Moriah. Right? I love these coincidences, don't you? Oh, friends, although God's call to sacrifice Isaac was an unbearable test of faith, it was given not so much for Abraham, but for us. If you're interested in my second most favorite chapter of the Bible, it's Genesis 22. It's a toss-up between Isaiah 53 and Genesis 22. As we know, Abraham responded in faith and took Isaac to Mount Moriah, the place of Jesus' crucifixion, to offer him as a sacrifice to picture what God would do to his own son 2,400 years later. (laughs) On that same mountain, Jesus would actually die on Mount Moriah, whereas Isaac didn't, of course. Isaac's story was simply a picture of God's grace through faith. I think it's important at this point And in your study of Romans, at this point is when we discover this, that your faith isn't the reason for your justification. Your faith isn't the reason you're saved. It's only the vehicle through which God saves you. Who saves? Your faith or God? God. Thank you. Faith doesn't save. It's the vehicle through which God saves. So God grants grace to those who will put their trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And at that moment, God imputes or gives our sin to Jesus and transfers Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection, to us who will just believe. Thus, we are justified by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. This is called the great exchange. Jesus gets our sin, we get his perfection. He dies for our sin, we're saved because of his perfection. This is the great exchange that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Do you see the exchange? This is why Paul wrote Romans 4.16. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his, Abraham's, offsprings. Not only to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all who live by faith. Friends, the example of Abraham, the promise of God, and now peace with God. As a result of all of this... We have peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, there's another great word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? It's up there. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to peace with God. We're going to pick up there next week and and unpack what that all means, starting in Romans 5. But Romans, as a way of conclusion, answers the riddle of the Bible, the primary riddle of the Old Testament, the question that's on the mind and heart of every person ever born. How How can sinful man be right with a holy God? That is the riddle of Scripture. 
How can sinful man be right with a holy God? This is the riddle laid out in Exodus 34. God said, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is what God does. He forgives. He, he's, he loves. But who will by no means clear the guilty? He'll forgive the guilty, but he won't clear the guilty of any sin. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers, well, which is it? That's the riddle. Does God forgive or does he visit iniquity on sinners? Which is it? The answer will come clearly next week, but I'm going to give you a hint. It's both. It's both. Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, that is God, might be just and the justifier. God cannot be unholy, can he? <laughs> he has to be just, and he just so happens to also be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God has never jeopardized his holiness, ever. Now skipping back one verse from Romans 3.26, here's how he does it. And we, that is the justified, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's the answer to the riddle. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a satisfaction of God's wrath by the blood of his son Jesus Christ to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There's the solution to the riddle. And we'll unpack that in depth next week along with looking at the fight for holiness in Romans 6 and 7 and then jumping into 8, Lord willing, with all of its glory next week. This morning we get to, again, confirm the love of God, the forgiveness of God found in Christ Jesus by faith in the Lord's Supper, right? These elements that are before us, the bread and the cup, remind us of the truths of Romans, particularly Romans 8, that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus sacrificed himself. This is how God forgives sinners and deals with sin, all in one, right here, in our, right before our eyes, things we put in our mouth remind us how God solves the riddle. Our sins are covered by the work of Christ on Calvary, and we become acceptable to God because of it. We're going to uh, read the words of institution here in a minute uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but before we do that, um, I would like to say a word of prayer over the elements and ask the elders who are going to help come forward and help me um, distribute the elements for your sake, for your joy, for your remembrance of the gospel. But we're going to serve you up front, and we would like you to just come if you know Christ. If you have not embraced Christ or his gospel, just stay seated. Don't bring more condemnation on yourself. It's okay. Just stay where, it's not okay, but just stay where you're at. And those of you who know Christ, come forward. If you have young children who are not yet ready to take the supper, I will be more than happy. It's a privilege for me to bless each of them.
and then you can go back to your seat and partake at your own time when you would like, when you're ready. Okay, so let me pray and then I'll read the words of institution and then you can come forward. All right, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came willingly, joyfully um, from heaven long ago to live out a perfect life that was required of all of us and then die a death that you did not deserve, but we did. Father, thank you that, that in sending your son, you've made a way for us sinners to be forgiven without jeopardizing your holiness. We, we've, we've been given a free gift in Christ that's to be received by faith. I pray that those in this room uh, will, will be nurtured spiritually as they come and affirm their faith in what Jesus did for them. And those who have not yet put their hope and trust in Christ, that they would do so right now, right where they sit. That they would realize that their own selfish, own agenda, own sin is what's keeping them from a relationship with you and that by just submitting their lives, confessing their sin and embracing Christ, this whole new way of life, a life of forgiveness and joy is available to anyone who will but come by faith. Thank you that these are all seen in the elements we have before us. God bless us as we take these in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.